0: The bottom line in business, Voice America Business.
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business channel. Now, here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: And good morning, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We have a great guest with us today, Chip Conley, who's the CEO and founder of Joie de Vie Hospitality. I love saying that.
3: <laughs> very, very sophisticated.
2: Oh, thank you. And um, he is also author of, of several books. Uh, your most recent, Chip, Peak: How to Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. Welcome today,
3: Chip. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you.
2: Oh, so glad you're here. So um, you live in San Francisco. Are you there today?
3: Yeah, Cheryl, I'm, it's a gorgeous day here. It's actually a February, sometimes in the winter here in San Francisco, we can have some beautiful, clear, and <clears throat> warm, crisp day. Warm and crisp at the same time, and that's what it feels like.
2: Oh, wonderful. Well, I know that um, San Francisco is a city that That's a whole lot of meaning for a whole lot of people, and I find it fascinating that that's where you do your work from because it's a city with a big heart, and Mm. we're going to talk about how heart has influenced you and your work. Um, So I've been reading your book, Mm -hmm. Peak: How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, and I really want us to get into sharing with the listeners what that's all about. Before we do that, though, please talk to us about... Who you were as a kid, how did you become somebody who loved life like this?
3: <laughs> well, I still am a kid. I'm
2: <laughs> there at the
3: big of It's all It's all a function of how you did do. We're doing this call late uh, in a week, and I'm tired uh, after a long <laughs> week. But Well, when I was a kid, I was a creative kid. I was sort of the kid who had imaginary friends and uh in some ways, my parents made me feel a little bit like I was an oddball and mm. to be worried about a little bit and I, when i was a, when I was about twelve years old, I said to my father, uh, I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and he just said, "You know what you can't make a living as a writer you've got to go do something else so mm. I filed that away in my brain, and ultimately uh in my um college years and I went to stanford i went to the business school, got an MBA, um, I decided to become a business person. And I was focusing on commercial real estate development. And frankly, at my age 25, I had a midlife crisis. <laughs> and just really 25? Yeah, I guess I'm precocious or something. And I just <laughs> was really disillusioned with the nature of the fact that I was negotiating all day long. That was really what my mm-hmm. job was about. And um, I decided to start a boutique hotel company, joie de vie, and called it joie de vivre meaning joy of life in french and i called it that just for my to remind me on a daily basis that's what i'm doing this for and Great. ultimately it became sort of the mission statement of what we're trying to offer our employees and our customers and that was 21 years ago and we're now the second largest boutique hotelier in the u.s all of our hotels are in california so we have about 40 hotels around the state of california and um you know, it's uh, joie de vivre is is a piece of what we try to be about. Even on our bad days, we still we still try to find some joy in what we're doing.
2: Well, you know that um, there's a lot of conversation about that concept in business these days. Make people happy, delight the customers, employees are your most important people, and I really think that people have tired of the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. What makes it different for your organization?
3: well well first of all when when your name <laughs> when the name of the company is defined by the spirit <laughs> the spirit with which you right. try to do your business, right. you are held accountable to walk your talk. that's number that's one true. but i I think that um a lot of it comes down to twenty to twenty one years of case studies we've seen you know we with 40 different hotels and lots of restaurants and spas and things like that, we can really see on a case-by-case basis that when we take over a host- hotel that's quite troubled in terms of the culture mm-hmm. of the, uh, of the uh, company or the hotel, um, that the moment we start to shift the culture, which is, of course, just another way to say a collection of employees and their mood mm-hmm. and how they feel about things, when that starts to shift, it does start it's palpable to the customer, especially in a service business. And if you can do that well, and, you know the fact that the customer starts to believe in you again, maybe, um, that leads to market share growth, and you get into this sort of virtuous circle of a spiral upward. And that's really what we've tried to do. And we've seen lots of metrics that show that when we do that well, Um, It works and it has good long-term financial results. So there are moments, it's easy in good times to talk about how you want to treat everybody well. What's interesting is when you actually try to live that creed during difficult times, when the easiest thing to do is to just cut costs and to sort of be expedient about how to get to the bottom line.
2: Right, and you've had that because there was a huge downturn in the travel and hospitality industry post-9-11, right?
3: Yep, and in fact, in our case, at that point, all of our hotels were in the the Bay Area, and even pre-9-11, the dot-com bust uh, was really uh, well, was creating double-digit um, revenue drops for the hotel industry in the Bay Area. So then 9-11 happened, and it got a lot worse. So, yes, we... Part of how I got reacquainted with Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs um, was because during that difficult time, I started, I was in the self-help section of a local bookstore looking for some, <laughs> something to try to get me through a difficult time, and I, I, I came upon um, Abraham Maslow's book, Toward a Psychology of Being which was a breakthrough book back in the 1950s and really spoke to the idea and what Abraham Maslow really speaks to is the idea that in life, there's, people have base needs, uh, what he calls his hierarchy of needs, which are physiological needs at the base and then safety needs above that. Once people have those sort of survival needs met, they're looking for something greater to aspire to. And his other three levels of, of his five-level pyramid were the third level was social belonging needs. The fourth level was esteem needs, how we sort of see ourselves in the world how other people see us. And then finally at the top, he he described self-actualization, um, which when people say, well, what does that mean, self-actualization? The em- embarrassing best way for me to actually describe that is... W- the um, ad campaign for the U.S. Army for 15 years, which was (laughs) Be All You Can Be, because actually literally the U.S. Army got that phrase from Maslow because they had a division of the Army that studied Maslow. So self-actualization really means the idea that someone feels like they have a sense of why they're here on the planet, and what they're doing and being in their life is in concert with what was meant to be. Mm -hmm. So There's no doubt that when we feel that way, um, we feel that sense of calling and inspiration and meaning in what we do uh, and who we are. And so Maslow spoke to that. It spoke to me because I was in a difficult place, but I sort of said, well, I'm supposed to learn from this experience of going through this downturn. Um, I love. There's a Winston Churchill quote, which is, "When you're going through hell, just keep going." And that, I had that taped <laughs> to my computer during that difficult time, and and I just said, "You know what? If I'm going to learn, if this is going to be this difficult, I better learn something in the process." Oh boy! And what I learned is just how do you how do you apply Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the the key relationships you have in the workplace? Mm-hmm.
2: So you have these employees who know things are not going so well during those times, um, you, they know that because there aren't as many people walking through the doors, right? There aren't as right. many customers. And they probably are beginning to wonder, am I going to have a job? Is this really going to be okay? Is the company going to be okay? And frankly, some of them are doing jobs that you know may not be too inspiring. Right you know, in the hospitality industry, um, you know somebody who is taking care of the customer when they're in front of the customer, you know it may give them meaning when the customer is not standing in front of them, it may not feel like there's so much meaning. Right. so how do you handle that?
3: Well, I think that you know one of the most important things I've learned in this process of studying Maslow and applying say Maslow just to be uh, and creating an employee pyramid. Is the idea that most people who think of their work as a job mm-hmm. focus on the task mm-hmm. and the you know almost like the checklist of what are the things I have to do? Right. And people who think of what their work is as more of a career, or most importantly, as a calling, really actually move beyond the task and are more focused on the purpose and the impact of what they do. Mm-hmm. So, to use an ex- a non-hospitality example, think of a nurse. Uh, and There's been a, a couple of studies that have shown this, and it's quite fascinating. When nurses are treated as if they are patient advocates, mm-hmm. and it, you know, lots of doctors don't certainly don't live that way, right. but they're but when it's the hospital and the administration and everybody thinks of the nurse as a patient advocate, and they train and and operate around that scenario, the nurses feel more of a sense of calling and appreciation and affection and just. Uh, capability in what they're doing, as opposed to a nurse thinking of themselves as the pain creator with the syringe, which is the extreme version of, you know, what a, what a, what a nurse does that might make right. them, you know, might be more like a job. Right, right. So for, for us in the hotel business, we had to really move people like our housekeeping staff, our room attendants, the people who clean toilets. From thinking of themselves just as, well, I'm, I'm here to just clean, clean toilets, mm. to actually really reacquaint them with what impact they're having on a guest who is far away from home and is having someone take care of their room mm. and all of their belongings while they're traveling and creating a sense of tranquility and, and peace of mind when they come back to their room because someone's take, not only just cleaned the room, but they put it in good working order, maybe even written, written a little note to the guest, or done something that actually put a little flower up I the guest. Whatever they do, mm-hmm. it sort of gives their signature of saying, hey, we, we're we taking care of you. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> ways you can do that, first of all, you are figuring out how you're, those people who have less uh, customer contact, mm-hmm. you have to think about how you can actually give them a, sense of what the guest or the customer is feeling. Right. And, and whether that's actually direct face-to-face interaction with them or reading letters from customers that speak to the impact mm-hmm. that, that you've had uh, as, as, as the employee um, or just recognition that comes from you know senior people in the company that says thank you uh, for what you're doing. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can do it. And In fact, you know, the chap- chapters five and six in Peak, my book, really give a collection of prescriptions that people can use to actually focus on those recognition and meaning needs of of employees.
2: You spend a lot of time thinking about this.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things that's funny about—I mean—I've got three thousand employees in the company. This is not a small company. It started okay. as a very small company, and now it's a big, big, big organization. So, um, I'm I'm a big believer in the idea that uh, companies are just bundles of human energy, and that sounds so. So, so new age and consciousness driven, <laughs> but it's really true. And I and I'm I'm coming from a perspective of, as a Stanford MBA, so I'm not you know I'm not someone right. who has my head in the clouds all the time. I believe that you know the the bundles of human energy. It means that basically there's a contagious effect, positive or negative, associated with what the culture of a company is. So when someone joins a company, we love sitting down with our employees who have just joined us and have been with us for 30 days, and we do a fresh eyes exercise where we really ask that new employee, what are you seeing here? (laughs) Because sometimes those of us who have been here for a while have gotten jaded to what we're seeing here, and someone with fresh eyes can say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And, And so I think the idea that we try to create an environment where the contagious effect we have is a positive one. As, you know, it's like throwing a, a a little stone in the middle of a pond. The ripple effect from that stone, you know, in a in a in a very difficult time when economic um, economic times are difficult, it's uh-huh. you don't see it. You don't throw a stone there; you throw a boulder, and so right, right. everything gets magnified because there's the fear factor that's built in there. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that we create an environment where those ripples are positive ripples as opposed to negative ones.
2: Well, I want to talk more about this when we come back right after this break. All we talk
0: about is money. Call us toll free, 866 472 5790, and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice America Business.
1: More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the Journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing. the the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The bottom line in business talk.
0: Money, money, up-to-date business and financial news. Money, money, Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And we're back. We're speaking with Chip Conley today, CEO and founder of Joie de Viz Hospitality and author of Peak: How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. Chip, you've given us a lot to think about with how to really inspire employees to work using Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And in the book, you do a beautiful job Elegant job of breaking this down, so that the layperson, anybody who isn't even familiar with Maslow, can really apply this. It's a very pragmatic book. Um, I'm wondering if
3: thank you. You, <laughs> I,
2: well, yeah, it's it's well done. It's thank absolutely you. well done. Um, and and here I am in the city of San Francisco with the fire trucks going by. You can probably hear them. <laughs> um, and um, so I'm I'm wondering if you'll tell us a little bit about the relationship truth. You talk Mm -hmm. about relationship truth and relationships are really at the core of all parts of business. Can you talk about that?
3: Well, if you look at companies that actually have sustainable growth and there's a number of studies that that I was able to read in the process of writing the book, what's fascinating is companies like Southwest Airlines, Whole Foods Markets, um, Harley-Davidson, Medtronic, these are companies, Google as a as a very fresh twenty first century kind of company, they're very relationship driven organizations. Um and I think, you know, one thing I like to sort of say when I'm out there talking to people is if you think about organiz if you think about your personal computer from twenty five years ago or twenty years ago the value in the personal computer 20 years ago was in the encasing of the computer, the hardware, mm. and and 80% of the value was in the hardware. 20% of it was in the software. Today, your personal computer is exactly the opposite. The value in your in your computer is really not in the hardware; it's the software, and that really describes the difference in the last 20 years of what's going on in companies in America and in the world is that the value. in in the companies, is is more and more in the sort of intangible, intrinsic, relationship-oriented, intellectual capital-oriented, reputation-oriented, and culture-oriented elements that define why is one company a successful company and another one is not. So what the relationship truth speaks to is the idea that there's really three primary relationships in most companies, and not, although not all of them, uh, if you're a small sole proprietor, you wouldn't have one of these pieces, there's employees, there's customers, and there's investors. And that doesn't mean that there's not a community, there's not vendors, there's not other choices, but those are the three that I focused on in the book. And I created a what I called a relationship truth pyramid for an, a, the employees using Maslow, the customers, and then the investors. And each one of those, I call it the relationship truth because in essence, it's meant to be Universal and iconic, so whether you're working for a, um, you know, a car dealership or a nonprofit environmental philanthropic organization, this, these pyramids are are relevant no matter what kind of organization you're working for because it goes back to the basic human needs and a hierarchy of needs that that Maslow talked about.
2: So in the relationship truth with an employee, what are those relationship truths?
3: Well, one of the things I should say before I even talk about that is just to say that there's... I talked about Maslow and the five levels of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. I really sort of took the idea of five levels and because I have a feeble brain and I can only handle so much, (laughs) I took it from five levels to three because I like to edit it. And so what I did was I sort of thought that the first two levels of the pyramid, physiological and safety needs, are really survival needs. Mm -hmm. The next two levels which are social belonging and esteem needs are our su- are success needs so the sense that you are successful in the world it's a relationship right. but it's very external it's like how do you relate to the world right. and then the the peak of the pyramid is a transformation need uh self actualization is a, is really a transformation a need or desire or uh something that you know it, when someone's in that state it's quite transcendental and transformative so think of the transformation pyramid of being survival succeed Transform as you move up the pyramid, so apply those three levels to the employee. The survival needs for an employee uh, is, are, are basically the compensation package. The compensation right. package or money uh, really defines the basic needs that creates base motivation for employees and there's no doubt that employees who don't have this foundational need, this sort of physiological safety need as an, as an employee they can't move up the pyramid because, you know, you can't pay the rent. So the problem with American business, generally speaking, is that it gets very caught up in the base of the pyramid because what's at the base of the pyramid, just like physiological and safety needs, it's very tangible. And we we in the business world have a tendency toward the tangible because you can measure it. Right. So companies get really fixated on the idea of how are we compensating relative to our competition, which is a very valid thing to go over. But as a com- as, you know, in our industry, the hospitality industry doesn't pay all that well, especially here in the Bay Area, which is a very expensive place with lots of high-tech jobs. And our company, frankly, is right at the mid-level. We're at the 50 percentile in terms of how we compensate people. We're not a, in terms of salaries and wages. Yet our turnover rate is one-fourth the industry average. So if you made the, you made the assumption that what drives employee retention is compensation – we would say here at Joie de Vivre with 3,000 employees, that doesn't work here. So why do people stay longer? So the, the, the survival need is money, and you can talk think broadly. And we think very broadly about lots of sort of unique ways to compensate people um, that are beyond just salary and wage. Like what? Uh, well, like, for example, we're in the hotel business, and we have lots of hotel rooms that aren't full on any particular night. So all of our employees, all 3,000 employees in the company, can twice per quarter go and stay for free with their family at any of our hotels in the company. Now, that's a mu- s- simple thing to offer, but it, it doesn't cost us much, and it certainly provides a benefit to the employees. Or mm-hmm. we, have, we have the largest spa, a day spa here in San Francisco, and so we give half-price massages to our employees and free uh, the free Japanese communal baths. It's a place called Kapuki Springs and Spa. Mm-hmm. It's the largest Japanese communal bath in the U.S., and it's just a really wonderful sort of Asian experience. And a person can go there as an employee for free, so offering offering that to of helps you know create a very solid base of the pyramid. But if the number the number one reason people leave their job is because they feel unrecognized or unappreciated by their direct supervisor, mm-hmm. so the middle level of the employee uh, pyramid or the relationship truth is recognition, and having how a company creates both a uh, a formal and an informal culture of recognition is what makes a difference in creating loyalty <clears throat> and having employees decide to stick around. The peak of that employee pyramid, after the survival need of, of money and the success need of recognition, is having a sense of meaning in what you do and what the company does or the organization does. And, and employees who have that sense of meaning in what they do and what, their, what the company does have a sense of calling and inspiration in what they're all about. And what you'll see as you move up this pyramid is you move from very tangible money up to the intangible, at the top of meaning. And, and yet what's most relevant is when someone is actually living in that state of meaning, they tend to be coming... Their motivation in life is more of an inspiration than a motivation. Motivation, if you think of motivation versus inspiration, motivation generally comes from an external factor. You can be motivated because you're getting paid, you know, um, money and compensation. Mm. You can be motivated because people give you prizes and recognition. But when a person actually is um, excited to do what they do, not because of the toys or the titles, uh, they're excited to do it because of the intrinsic motivation that comes, an intrinsic feeling that comes from actually working specifically on that particular kind of thing that mm-hmm. feels like they're calling, then you've moved an employee from just having to constantly be externally motivated to having an intrinsic um, excitement and inspiration in what they do. And I can tell you that when you meet an employee as a customer who is living their calling as opposed to one who's living their job or their career, you notice the difference.
2: Absolutely and i'm I'm wondering, can people have more than one calling in life?
3: <laughs> I'm dealing with that myself right now um, <laughs> well, sure, I think I because you know for twenty years twenty one years I was founder and c e o of a big hospitality company that and at the same time, I really love writing and speaking and talking about this. so I think you can actually have more than one calling in life, certainly over the course of a lifetime, absolutely. In terms of simultaneously having two callings, I think it's hard, it's hard. But there's lots of people we know who love you know what they're doing in their work, and then they have a hobby on the side that you know really feels like a calling also. Or frankly, you know, being a great mother or father or grandparent is can be a calling too. So you know how you define a calling. Right? There's a one chapter right. in the book where I in the last chapter I talk a lot more depth about how do you know whether something's a calling or not. But um, you know a lot of it comes down to just I, I hate to put it in this these, this framework is um the pain threshold when you love something so much and you do you're willing to do it beyond what is normal for people um if it, if you can lose do it and in the course of doing it, you lose complete track of time mm-hmm. that's you're probably living your calling mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Some people would call that um workaholics
3: Well, I think the difference between workaholic and um someone who's living a calling is their level of consciousness. When someone's workaholic to this state, Yes, you can't... You can certainly be living your colic... Living your colic. Living your work... You can leave... It's colic. It's a sickness. You can you can be living your calling and have workaholic tendencies by the means of actually getting sure. so caught up in it that it's it sort of overtakes you. Yes, right. I think that is true. Right, but the right. difference between, I think, workaholism and a calling is when someone's living a workaholic life it, they're they are being driven by it as opposed to inspired by it and they are maybe doing it from a place of being unconscious in terms of just how it's affecting them and the rest of their life as opposed to come from, coming from a place of consciousness about how what it does the process of do it, living your calling can actually get you to a place where you have a sense of freedom and a sense of being energized by something, as opposed to being depleted. I mean, someone who actually is living sort of the classic workaholic life, I think, is depleted by what they do, as opposed to right. energized by it. That's
2: right. And we're going to hear more about how Chip Hundley energizes his employees and his company and himself. <laughs> back. <laughs>
0: talk about his money call us toll free 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts we talk money all the time voice of america
1: business consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What?
0: I can't get the ketchup bottle, okay? Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
1: The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity, but being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cliggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The Economy and the Markets, clear thoughts in a complex world.
0: Stocks, bonds, 401Ks, investments, refinancing, we can help you. Call now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome
2: back. We're speaking with Chip Conley today. Chip, you were um, talking about being energized and yeah. how that makes such a difference. I, You know, when you talk about having meaning in work and being inspired, and you talk about how you became so inspired when you were looking and doing the research on Maslow. Right. I'm wondering, what is it that you were hungry for that Maslow was able to turn on in you? Because it seems like that you know, the things that really light us up are things that um, you know, we need and we want. And So what yeah. is there for you?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of people who get into business and they're excited and and enthused about what they do because there's a competitive urge in them, and I am absolutely one of those people. But when the competition, frankly, in the downtime of 2001, oh, two, oh, three, being purely competitive. In terms of trying to keep our head above water and and you know gain market share and do a bunch of other sure. things it didn't it wasn't enough to sustain me during what was a time where actually i didn't take a salary for three years and I went through all of my retirement money and I had to take out loans from friends i mean it was it was if I was doing it i was if I was purely fear motivated it it would have i would have burned out because it was a marathon right. and if I was purely com- competition motivated at some point. I would I would sort of get to a place where i say, well, you know, what's the meaning of life here? And that's really where I got to. And I, so I think that what has inspired me and given me the sense of why did I want to adapt Maslow's theory for my company and then go out and research about other companies and then write a book and now go out and do a book tour and, and speak about it, all of that revolves around the idea that, um, you know, in life, we leave a legacy, whether the legacy is children or, you know, the Taj Mahal, you know, home we built in the suburbs or whatever it is. And um, for me, part of my legacy has been creating a company and a culture that I really hope people admire and that people in the company enjoy and creating great hotels. But actually, I think during that downturn, I felt like what I was being blessed with and being at the same time, bludgeoned with <laughs> was this education and a wealth of wisdom that I was learning, and I think the process of learning all of that started to feel like my legacy. Started to feel like, wow, I my legacy is beyond just being, having a reputation. Again, I think I moved from success to transformation on the pyramid yeah. on a certain level because I saw that if I, you know, if I win you know in life if i win by getting through this difficult time the win for me is not just making sure my com- my company succeeds or flourishes mm-hmm. it's somehow actually having a greater purpose in it for myself and for others and and being able to to take that lesson and and pass it on now i have to say in the course of reading maslow and doing all the research on that i there, by no means did i have something as articul- articulate specific and and sounding altruistic as what I just said. I mean, it was like, okay, I just I was exploring it. I was learning about right, it. Right. And in retrospect, now I can say having written the book and having gone out and spoken about it and studying all these companies and seeing that there's a there are these peak performing companies that have Maslowian hierarchy of needs um, principles and how they operate. That ultimately came as part of the process. But I loved the process. And so I loved the process of actually going out and learning about it not even knowing at some point that I was going to go out and write a book about it
2: right right well, you know it 's interesting because a lot of the companies you mention in the book um, you know it seems like they did things and did them right, either out of a crisis or um just because they developed that way really well. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like they were actually saying, "Well, step one is we will make sure this <laughs> is taken care of." And step—it's almost like a more intuitive process. I think so. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Maslow, when you look at it, it—it it makes so much sense when you look at what he says and you look at mm-hmm. you know the, the needs and the and you, way well, you've categorized them as survival, successful, and transformation it makes a lot of sense. And. So it's like we don't really have to know, Maslow, if we just followed our own intuitive way of doing things, that somehow in business we have moved so far away from that that all we're doing is running by spreadsheets and stock prices. And, you know, why does it take so much for an organization to move beyond that?
3: Well, I don't even know if it's intuitive for everyone. I mean, I think it's natural for people to sort of have this, Move, the move up the, the pyramid, but I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I think that I do think the value in Maslow and and I think in, in, in peak the you know and, and the, the principles that I put in the book is it helped to create a language that does speak to the intuition, does that does speak to the nature of human human nature of wanting to go up that pyramid, but somehow. When you say intuition, I think I, I hear what you're saying in terms of the idea intuition of human beings on this planet yeah, right. and what they aspire to. The problem is that we have this weird tendency when we put on our business suits to, <laughs> to all of a sudden go from being humans to robots in some way, or feeling you know having a different set of hierarchy of needs. And so I think that what the that what Maslow has helped me do, and with the principles and peak, is to create a language and a framework. For any company to take what may feel intuitive on a human nature level and apply it to in a very logical way to how you can do your business, mm-hmm. and that's really why I think people are getting a lot out of it because it's very universal and right. it takes. As one person said to me in an email, you know what you did, Chip, was you spoke to me in way in, in ways that I've always operated but I never had a way to actually communicate it or teach it to others mm. and so that's really you know that's a valuable lesson it to be able to sort of say okay now now we can take these very humanistic principles apply them to our relationship with employees customers or investors or even vendors or just the community and have some concrete examples out there in the world, that show that this stuff works, as opposed to just sa- sounding like we're just, you know, very liberal minded and new age and mm-hmm. and and high minded in our principles.
2: Right, right. Um, well, I want to get to the customer and investor pyramids and peak for prescriptions in our next segment. Before we go to break, I'd like to um, bring up the book you wrote in two thousand and one. Okay. The Rebel Rules: uh-huh. Daring to Be Yourself in Business and richard branson um you know a uh, rebel extraordinaire <laughs> uh he wrote the foreword for you
3: right
2: and um did you did you
3: um do
2: work with richard
3: you know, I met I met Richard a few times because Virgin um, actually flies into San Francisco, and I knew some of his key executives here, oh, and, yeah. and so I'd gotten to know him. But we never had actually ever worked together. Mm-hmm. What I did is I wrote a a first draft of the book, and I had a friend of mine who knew Richard well, and who I I I'd, I'd met Richard a few times. This friend of mine gave him the book and said, "You know, what, read a few chapters of this and think, see what you think." And Chip wants you to give a quote for the book and. Um, Richard read it. I read started reading it, and he said, "You know, I like this so much. I'll, I'd like to do more than a quote." And so he he wrote the foreword for the book, which was which was great. And the book was written back um, in like 1999, and it came out in January of 01. And it was really based upon the idea back then that the nature of business leaders in the in the world was changing and. You know, 25 years ago, the only rebel in the business world was Lee Iacocca at Chrysler. (laughs) And that was it. I mean, the rest of the business leaders in the world were all sort of, you know, were smart, but very sort of conventionally minded suits. And today, the idea that business, you know, business people can be rebels and be successful sounds, uh, you know, like so obvious. But when I was reading, when I was writing the book and, and doing my research for that one, I was struck by uh, how many successful business rebels there are out there, from Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines to oh, you know, Oprah Winfrey uh, to Steve Jobs uh, or Howard Schultz at Starbucks. And there's, you know there, there are principles that sort of define a business rebel, and the four qualities I most focused on were vision, passion, instinct and agility. And then I spoke to how you could try to build those four qualities in yourself.
2: And what do you do to build that in yourself? But you well, only have 30 seconds to tell me. I be brief. <laughs> Before I, your break.
3: <laughs> you know, I, I think the key is to just, first of all, I think of the four, the one that actually drives the most is the passion. If you're not passionate about what you do, you'll never have the other three work for you. So it's. I think the essential piece of the four that makes it work is the one that actually sort of speaks to Is it something that comes naturally to you and is it something that excites you in such a way that you feel passionate about it?
2: Right. Well done. We're going to go to break right now and we'll be back.
0: All we talk about is money. Call us toll free 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice America Business.
1: That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting. Developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.
0: Talk about his money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk, talk money, money all the time. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: Welcome back to our last segment. This is Cheryl Acavita. We're speaking with Chip Conley today. Chip, um, in your book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, you talked about how you're in love with pyramids, and it sure shows because they're all over the book. Mm -hmm. And the pyramids that we haven't discussed yet are the customer pyramid and the investor pyramid. Can you just quickly give us a sense of um, the customer pyramid?
3: Sure. Every customer, whether it's the government of the United States or whether it's a person going to get a haircut, um, has a basic expectation of what they're looking for, for the money mm-hmm. that they're putting in. And that's true in life. I mean, that's true in, you know, if you're going to have a date or if you're going to go mm-hmm. buy a car and drive it off a lot and a, and a week later have buyer's remorse. Mm-hmm. So my basic premise is that the survival need for a customer is having their expectations met. If you as a company don't deliver on the expectations of a customer, uh, you you will have a disappointed customer. But the fact is just creating, you know, just meeting the expectations of the customer doesn't create customer loyalty. Um, it creates just customer satisfaction. And 20 years ago, that was good enough. Customer satisfaction is what, you know, built Ford and GM, but it's also what killed them because, frankly, if you just provide satisfaction, it doesn't create necessarily long-term loyalty. The next level up, the success level, if the survival level is meeting satisfaction, meeting expectations, the success level is meeting desires. And so really moving up your pyramid to think about what is it that the customer would desire beyond just their expectations? And companies that actually deliver on that are delivering on the social belonging or esteem needs of, of a customer. But the fact is that the companies out there that have the most evangel- evangelical customers, and I don't mean religious, but I mean mm. the customers that are actually really believe in the company and go out and talk about the company, they're companies that actually deliver both on the expectations, also on the desires, as well as on the unrecognized needs of the customer. Mm. And that's a, a rather intangible concept. And as, as you go up each of these pyramids, what you'll find is that the peak is the you know what the peak is what's transformative and it tends to be intangible, but it's what creates differentiation for companies. So when JetBlue offered started offering TVs with Directv on the back of the uh, seat in front of you on the plane, mm-hmm. they they actually spoke to not something that customers had necessarily been asking for, but they spoke to something that actually really gave customers a sense of control and entertainment and very much. Um, uh, sort of almost the freedom to have your own experience.
2: Yeah. And
3: what, what is a very regimented kind of experience, especially post-9-11 when security right. and all that made the process of travel painful. So when companies, you know, Apple did this with the iPod, you know, it was an unrecognized need, the fact that you could actually... Sony Walkman did it with the Walkman originally, right the idea right. you could have your music with you while you went for right. a run well, that was you know that was not something that customers had even imagined but right. so when companies can actually address these sort of transformational self actualization needs of a com- of a, a customer, the customer feels that uh, that sense of, um, of of like well, the company knows me even better than I know myself. Mm and when you when someone you know when when you are when you're giving your money your good money to a company like that um you feel you know very reassured that it was a good investment, but you also right. are more likely to go out and do it again, come back to that company, and also also tell others
2: right right so you know you um You've had a very interesting run as CEO, certainly um, with a company that's very creative and you've allowed your employees to be very creative and living in an environment of the hotels that are just, you know, each one a story in itself, which Mm -hmm. is really fun. Um, I'm wondering what it's like for you when you, you know, shut off the computer Mm -hmm. and you um, walk away for the day and you engage with other... um, I know there are times you have the opportunity to engage with other CEOs. Right. And you're not sitting in a business meeting, but obviously business will come up. What do you guys talk about? What are the questions that are on the minds of you and other CEOs today?
3: Well, I'm in a group called Young Presidents Organization, even though I'm no longer young. Uh, (laughs) YPO. and what we tend to talk about there you know what's interesting is if you scratch underneath the surface of most CEOs or presidents there is maybe a potential business philosopher there for some of them there's actually a perspective on human nature and about you know the nature of people that if you get beyond if you get people out of the sort of the work world and they're out there talking and thinking more broadly they can see it. The problem is that the business culture that we tend to live in is so transactional that it actually makes people uh, you know focus on the bottom line and what's expedient but generally speaking when when i when I talk to other business leaders uh, they're trying to make their mark you know not just their money they're trying to make their mark out there in an organization and create an environment where you know, people are inspired as customers or or employees. Mm-hmm. So I, I I I I don't doubt that, having talked with a lot of people. But I think the question is, you can believe that, but then your practice. It's like talking about your kids. If right. you have this belief about how you should raise your kids, and then you know when when your kid spills the milk all over the dog, and the dog then goes knocks over something else you're not always as charitable in how you actually deal with it, uh, and so yeah. so the practicality is, and this is what I think is so essential is to realize, okay, you know, bad things happen in the world, and the question is, how do you actually react to it? One of my favorite books of all time is Viktor Frankl's um, Man's Search for Meaning, yeah, Man's Search for Meaning. And it's a great book. I mean, he's a guy who was a psychologist in, like, Vienna, you know, just like Freud was, and uh, he ended up in a German concentration camp and spent a few years there. And it was the experience he had in concentration camp that taught him the lesson that, you know, we are not the victim of our circumstances. We are, we, we you have stimulus and response. And you can have, you can't always con- control the stimulus, but you can certainly re- com- have influence over the response. And so as we go to being, CEOs in the world or business leaders, and we have all kinds of stuff. We have, you know, cartons of milk, uh, in the, you know, figuratively uh, falling on us. It's very easy to sort of get to be reactive. And I think the key question and for business leaders is how do you move beyond reaction and right. come up with a, a, well cra- a well-crafted response that speaks to the principles that you have that you hold deeply and that the company holds deeply.
2: You know, the um I think people have lost their belief in leaders and there is um it's almost as if the the leadership is always suspect of not having the best interests of the people at heart but only having the best interests of the bottom line at heart. And it seems like it would take um an awful lot for people to begin to believe in their leader in an organization. You have figured that out.
3: Well, I and I'm not... I'm far from perfect. I had a meeting with the top five people in my company today, and someone showed me a marketing brochure that really wasn't very good, and I actually was blunt in my response, and I actually think I hurt someone's feelings. So, I mean, we... we in life, and I was... And it happened because I was expedient. I just sort of didn't have a lot of time to talk about it, and I just had to sort of get it out. So we have to realize especially the more senior you are in an organization, the things we say, the behaviors we exhibit, uh, both you know, verbally or non-verbally, um, are magnified by the people around us. So we have a, a huge responsibility as role models in terms of what kind of behavior we want to see in our companies. So if, if we're dissatisfied with the level of culture in our company, we should start with looking at the, in the mirror and saying, what am I doing to contribute to that culture? Mm-hmm. You can go back to gandhi's wonderful quote which you know you know be the change you want to yeah. see in the world and i in be the change you want to see in your own company i mean the fact is some of the people who are complaining about the leaders in their company are mid-level managers well what are you doing then <laughs> you're a mid-level manager you're a leader so what are you doing to you know walk the talk right. of your principles and you know or how are you being instead victimized by saying, "Well, it's just not how things are done around here. I'm just going to be, I'm going to behave like you know the company culture." If you're doing that, at some point, you it means you've acquiesced, and it means that, frankly, you know you need to get out of there. That's just my mm-hmm. opinion. Is you know yeah. someone who actually stays in that environment uh, will become jaded. Hmm.
2: Yeah. And so, um, do you go and enjoy your hotels? You know, and take advantage of the great service and all that good stuff.
3: Well, I, I do. I mean, obviously, I get a different level of service just because people know who I am, and it, it, it can be good or bad. Um, in, in There have been times in, in the opening of a new hotel where I'll actually go move into the hotel for a week mm-hmm. and just experience the hotel. But, I, you know, I can only do so much of that. I think one of the challenges that we have, every 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 kind of industry has a challenge. Our challenge in our industry is it's easily a burnout industry. There are very few businesses out there that are open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So there's never really a downtime in a hotel. So um, if you don't create boundaries for yourself, and that's one of my big challenges in my work is to have boundaries and making sure I actually take a lot of vacation time, which is part of the way I actually am able to regenerate myself. But, uh, you know, the nature of your business will define the kind of person you become. And a lot of people in the hospitality industry become burned out because um, the nature of the business is a marathon.
2: Well, Chip, we're coming to the close of our show today. This has been a very full hour. We appreciate you being here. If there was one thing you wanted to leave people with thinking, what would that be?
3: Well, I think it would probably be the idea that um, companies, companies that succeed realize that their peak performance is the result of helping each of the people in their company rise up to their full potential. So great leaders are really all about human potential. They're all about actually focusing on the potential in people and helping actualize it.
2: Chip Conley, his book is Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. How can people reach you or learn more about this?
3: Well, um, the website for For myself and the book is chipconley.com, and Conley is spelled C O N L E Y, all one word, chipconley.com.
2: Great. Thanks for being here, Chip.
3: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Good to talk to you, Cheryl.
2: Keep up the good work. Remember, everybody, to think big because the world could become a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl and Vito.